and welcome to Galley Stories, stories of the Bering Sea and beyond, hosted by Mark Kaler. My name is Penka Jane, podcast deckhand and longtime listener. We'd thank you to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. Here's today's catch. Hello guys and welcome back to another installment of Galley Stories, stories of the Bering Sea and beyond. I am your host, Mark Kaler. And before this episode gets started, I want to thank you guys for tuning in and listening, liking and subscribing. Uh, and leaving those iTunes reviews would be very, very helpful. Uh, new uh, email we got since Sig's first episode was, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher this name, uh, Vagard Amont. Vagard, if I pronounce that wrong, I do apologize. Says, hello, greetings from Norway, southeast coast, not Karmoy, which most of you guys know, previous listeners. A lot of our Norwegian folks have come from Karmoy. Uh, even though I'm not involved in the fishing industry, I have listened to every single episode. I really enjoy the podcast. What a great way to document the contemporary history of the U.S. and the Alaska fishing community. <clears throat> My questions are, when are you planning on bringing in a guest to interview you? Well, I'm not. Then he goes on to say, maybe Casey or someone else with media exposure. Uh, Casey, previous episode, I think episode five. Um, not planning on it, but I did promise him that uh, 200 episodes and we'd, we'd see it done. But anyway, guys, um, Sig's going to start out here, and it's going to be just jumping right off when we left off last week. And uh, it's going to be a long one, so sit back and relax. And uh, again, if you enjoy the podcast, like and subscribe, and leave a review on iTunes. Here we go. Back to you, Sig. We go on strike. We fish our season. We're doing our thing. And offloaded. I learned a lot. I had a hell of a time. It was just amazing. Um never forget it and and uh uh then it was time to go home and then i was late for school again and so rather than take the boat all the way to dutch we made it to saint paul and the old man's like you gotta go you know of course i don't want to and so they dropped me off in saint paul island kind of on the way because there's no guarantees you'd even get out of dutch and so get to saint paul uh, and then there was a, a couple of kids there I met that were real nice. And there was a, one of dad's friends that was native to the island. And, uh, he was going to make sure I got on the plane, give me a ride. And then there's old, there's an old hotel there in St. Paul. Uh, let's just call it St. Paul hotel. Of course, today it's dilapidated, dilapidated, right? And, uh, and I stayed there. And I remember from my final memory of that summer, because <laughs> uh, there was the pub, the bar next door, and then the hotel was there. And, you is know, that the same one that's attached to the airport now? No, it's this is closer to town. So this is right when you get out of, you know, nothing by the airport. That was right. way down the street. And uh, yeah, it was an old blue building. It was, it was blue. And it was on the right-hand side of the road. When you walk up from Trident, you're going up that way towards the store, mm -hmm. like on the other side, right there. But it's just dilapidated. <laughs> so so I'm in the, I remember I was in the second store, first or second story. And, uh, you know, they got they put me up in that place. I was waiting for the next day to, to get on a plane. And, of course, I didn't know anybody. I mean, I hung out during the day, but as soon as it got dark, I was scared to hell. Stayed in my room, and I, I'm like trying to think how old I was. But anyway, shit, that might have been when I was 12. 
I think I was 12 at that time. And this was not that summer where we were in Nome. Anyway, in fact, I'm almost sure of it because, so I waited, you know, was waiting, trying to go to sleep. And then of course the bar was next door and everybody was going nuts. I mean, you know, I don't know what time it was. I remember it was dark and I woke up and guys were screaming and yelling and fighting and breaking bottles and scared the hell out of me. I think I was 12. And uh, yeah, because that was the first time I took the boat up with the old man and I had to get the hell off the boat. Anyway, uh, I'm scared to shit. So I'm looking at the, you know, like hiding behind the window, kind of peeking out and afraid of all these guys. Um, and that was a horrifying night. Then I remember the, uh, one of dad's friends that was, uh, one of the guys, fishermen there in St. Paul got me in the morning and then I got on a plane and then I think I ended up in cold. I know I ended up in cold Bay and I had to overnight there by myself. And yes, I was 12 because I remember that because it was it was a goat show. And then uh, and those guys knew, you know, like, hey, this kid's got to get to Seattle, blah, blah, blah. And they got me out of there the next day. And then I got to Anchorage and I got from Anchorage to Seattle by myself. Where did you stay in Cold Bay? I don't know. It was at the airport. Because those guys, you know, they're just hanging out. So you just stay there. It's like Dutch Harbor was a different airport then than it is now and, and all that. <coughs> I was 12. Wow. I'm sure. I'm going to ask my mom about that. I know I was 12. I know I was. But I, but, but I think, yeah. And then, uh, and, uh, but I was thinking that was after that. We struck, they were on strike every year. But I think it was uh, when I was 12, I did that first St. Matthews. Yes. And then the one with Nome, I was older. When we were in Nome and St. Matthews, then I was late for school again. But I think I got out of Dutch that time. But it was still late. Did you ever make it to school on time? No, it didn't, <laughs> didn't seem like it. And I know the teachers didn't like it. And I, I remember one of the teachers, uh, and I was, uh, you know, I, at the time, I was a pretty good soccer player. And, uh, and of course, that's a international, like in Europe, that's soccer was it. Uh, old man was just a fanatic. Uh, I did play on Seattle Select for a tiny little bit, but wasn't quite good enough to be there. Um, and of course, the league that we played on in school, that was a lot of fun because the same league that we played in, all those guys went to the same junior high and high school, pretty much. So we all knew each other. So that was always fun. That was a lot of fun. Um, and then you'd even go... To, before you went to school, even in junior high, I remember, I, we'd go early, like an hour or so early before school started and go play indoor because it's always raining here in Seattle. And it was the same teacher who was the same coach for the league. His name was Mr. Lunt. So that was a lot of fun. I, I, I mean, that was a lot of fun. And that was a good camaraderie. And then uh, the high school team did pretty good. And... Uh, uh, but yeah, you're always late. And I remember one of the teachers, and this is probably when I'm 16, 17, 17, let's say. I remember one of the teachers, uh, his name was Coach Hill. And he was a good guy. He's like, why don't you play football for me? And I go, well, what, football? I go, I know nothing about football. Yeah, but you, you know, you'd make a good blah, 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 whatever. And I remember 
maybe I was being a smart ass trying to emulate my father. Who knows? But I go, what would you rather do? Would you rather play a game? Because you had to practice in the summer. I go, would you rather play a game all summer or would you rather go to Alaska and make money? And I never forget, his jaw dropped. He's like, what are you going to say to that? You know, there's nothing you can say. And so that's kind of how that went down and uh, didn't end up playing football. <laughs> and I know probably the same, right around the same time, you know, age 16, 17, in high school, uh, before I was a senior, uh, uh, I think the band leader, because I played drums in the band, and he was he was uh, asking about work, you know. So even the teachers knew that they could get out of there and do a little giddy up in the summer for salmon. So they and and you know think about it. You got these kids that are that are fishing salmon in the summer or doing whatever like I did, and you've got this 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 whole you know social order of kids. They're driving around in fancy cars. You know what I mean? Like these yeah. kids are thinking, where the hell are these guys getting the money? Like Eric Idy, another buddy of mine, he fished off the coast here all the time with his father on weekends and in the summers full time. You know, so, so yeah, you're making enough to buy yourself a car and do your thing. And so I thought that was, a, you know, for us, we were just lucky because at least not, not in that in that era, there was always work. When you're beating the docks, you know, I mean, Ballard was buzzing and there was always guys, hey, you, you need somebody, you need somebody. Somebody was always getting fired for being a dumbass or last minute, let's take another guy, you know, and you'd grab an extra man. So there was always, it seemed like something, whether it was in crab or cod or, or, or especially salmon, you know. And uh, outside, so you, outside of salmon, did you... Um... Was Northwestern your primary employment then? Or did you work on other boats? No, I mean, I on Salmon, it was uh, on the Jennifer B. with John uh, till I was 19. So I, I was 14, 15, 16, yeah, five years there. 19 or 20. Then I did a little bit with my Uncle Carl. It was Glenn and I again. That was kind of fun. And then, of course, uh, a little bit in Norway, uh, you know, as a real young teenager, just uh, uh, getting your feet wet, so to speak. You know, that was not really a, you know, that was a learning thing. And then, of course, Northwestern uh, for St. Matthew's and then Gnome King Crab. That was the big one. That was good money. Um, <laughs> I remember, and yeah, because the one year, I think I was 18 at the time, 17, somewhere in there. And it seemed like St. Matthew's, you know, I remember one year they had 170 or 177 boats registered. My Uncle Carl had the ocean spray. And, of course, back then, you know, you didn't fish one load of gear. You had two loads or three. You know, she'd spend so much time bringing up, like, you know, we'd bring up 150 pots, store them, come back down, grab another 150 pots. Or, you know, he had a smaller vessel, so he did it in three loads, right? So it took, there was a lot of prep time into this thing. Um and it seemed like every year, you know, if we did good, then the next year, the guys would, eh, we're not going to do that. We, it was a failure last year. It went too quick. So the, the numbers were going half. So it seemed like every other year you'd make money up there just because you didn't have the competition. And there was a lot of other seasons to do. So a lot of guys would say, well, we're going to do a salmon trout or, well, we're going to go to shipyard instead. Or, you know, we're not going to do it this year. It wasn't like you had to. Um, you just did it if you had the time to do it. 
And so that's kind of how that went. And uh, I remember we were on my uncle's boat with our skiffs or bombing around, me and my buddies. And then fishing game was on board. They were registering him. And he goes, how many guys are registered? And I remember the guy saying, I think he goes, 170, including you, something like that, which is a shitload of votes for that little, little season. And, uh, you know, and then it'd go down a half again, and then you'd make money. Um, so it was, it was a lot of fun, you know, doing that. Um, and St. Matt's was always the good money. Like I said, some of the teachers, I don't think they were envious. They just saw that these kids are doing it. We can do it, you know. I mean, I remember, like, Glenn's father, his name was Tonus Peterson. who's just love him to death, but he had passed away too, too early. Uh, he had an El Camino, and he always liked me. You know, even on his deathbed, when I saw him the last time in, in, in the old country, he's like, you know, he just, you know, keep doing what you're doing. He really uh liked what I was doing respected me so I got that car and I had 500 bucks so I bought it for 500 bucks and uh, uh of course you're gonna you don't have a license but you know you're gonna drive it so you know you're gonna drive it to school it's just gonna happen and uh of course your dad's not in town so you know you're gonna fudge with your mother because you know she was pretty easy to trick, not because, you know, she didn't know any better, but, you know, I would just pull my English on her and then, oh, okay. okay. See what I'm saying? Yeah. If I didn't explain it in Norwegian, I could get by with murder with her. <laughs> so, so you're kind of playing that game. And then uh, I remember fixed that up. And then the next year, I, I think I sold it for like 1800 bucks or something like that. I think it was 1600 or something like that. A lot of money. And then I bought that 69 uh, uh, Mach 1. That was a, a, a my Mustang. Dream, that's my dream car. Yeah, I had one when I was uh, 16, 16, 17, or, or started working on it. And, of course, it was a piece of junk. And, and uh, <coughs> there was a guy here in Ballard, uh, Craig Hatton. He was a year older than I. And even then, he was a mechanical genius. He had one as well. He still is. And he still is. And now he owns Hatton Marine. Yeah. There's a plug for a guy. And, uh, you know, real good guy. I bought my boat from, from Craig. Did you? Yeah. Yeah, and so he, uh, you know, I didn't realize how well he had done for himself. And, and one of those guys, I mean, him and his friend, they came up with a patent for a, a, a jack to, for an engine lift. Um, and they, uh, you know, so same kind of a thing where he was in the automotive field. And, of course, all the kids that I knew went to auto shop and we were just flunkies. But uh, it was just a time to go screw off. Um, but Craig was always serious about it. And another, what's his name? Uh, Don or, God, what's his name? Lindquist or something. He had a 67. Craig had a 69. I had a 69. There was another guy named Cuddy back before our time a few years. He had a, he had a blown 69. Uh, All 351 Cleveland? So, yeah, I think his was. Mine was a Windsor, which was a, a two-bolt main. But it's okay. Craig fixed it up. So he was rebuilding my engine, you know, because I didn't have the knowledge. And he, he just, uh, you know, that engine was a lot of horsepower. And so when I got, so I remember screwing around on that car, uh, you know, a lot of speeding tickets. I know uh, I went to the magistrate one time and the magistrate's like, uh, you know, he didn't go to a judge and he's like, well, 
what are you driving around in? I said, he sees it on the paper. Let me see it. So we walk outside the little courthouse thing, and he looks, took one look at that, and he goes, you little bastard, you know, you ran me off the road, you know. And so he's throwing the book at me, and I'm like, oh, man, what am I going to do? And so I painted the car blue. It was kind of a lime green. It's like, ah, I better paint it just to camouflage it. it. A bit. So I got that camouflaged. And, and, at, and right about that time is right when nitrous oxide came out. So I was one of the first guys in the neighborhood, you know, that, that had, uh, you know, that rebuilt motor, nitrous oxide. That car had all the options in a shaker hood scoop, clock in the dash, uh, fold down rear seat, all the goodies, the spoilers, you know, it was a pretty cool car. Yeah. For, you know, and. Big, uh, big magnet. Oh, yeah. It was a lot of fun. And uh, a lot of close calls. Uh, and so we were living for the, for our cars, you know. I know uh, later on, the, some of the girls that went to school, oh, yeah, we used to call you guys the car club, you know. Because my other buddy had a 70 Mach, and my other buddy had a 69 Red Mach 1, and my other buddy had a Challenger, nice, uh, I think it was a 70 Black, 70, 71 Black Challenger. My other buddy is a fisherman. He had a, uh, he ended up with a Trans Am. Everybody's got muscle cars. Oh, yeah, all of us. And then, of course, Hatton, he had his... Uh, car and then uh and his buddies had cars and so there was a lot of muscle cars in, in high school back then and uh i know i remember one morning i was and of course i was driving the thing with with open headers no exhaust when we took it to shop uh first time uh didn't have i stripped the interiors i'm driving on a five gallon bucket with open headers i think i had the doors off the damn thing and i made it to school just to get it in the shop you know, I mean, it's like, are you kidding me? And uh, and uh, finally got her fixed up. Norman, my brother Norm, had a, a, a 70 Camaro. Beautiful car. Gorgeous. Uh, he, you know, so I felt sorry for my mom when I looked back because you got all these auto parts and all these, you know, grease monkeys running around your pretty house and, mm -hmm. and the driveway looks like a junkyard and and uh, gone. she put up with a lot of, I, when you think back, she put up with a lot of muck from Sig, Norman, and Edgar. And, uh, <laughs> and of course, all our buddies had cars. So then, you know, you come over and you get your dinner and making a bunch of noise. And I had racing slicks over at the gas station. So if guys wanted to screw around with us, you know, we could swap out the tires real quick. And you could, uh, like, disconnect the exhaust real quick. And just being, a, just being an idiot. And... Uh, course with the nitrous uh i remember you know sitting at a light and i think i left the bottle on i forgot because i could reach around and open it and then uh listening to music and i just thumping my finger and i hit the switch by accident and the thing launched right into traffic right into the intersection you know and nobody hit it thank god and uh uh but you know even then we were really conservative with our money Quite honestly, a lot of the money that I made when I was 11, 12 years old came from babysitting, if you believe it or not, because all the Norwegian guys were going out having fun. They were in their prime of life and all the kids, their kids that were, you know, I don't care, four, five, six, seven, eight, you know, and here I am, you know, 10, 11, 12. And during the, you know, the, the winter months, well, <coughs> didn't bother me to sit around and watch a movie. And then they'd come home and like Tortolison. He'd come home, 
and I was watching Dee Dee and Andrew, his little kids, and then, uh, you know, of course, they'll pay you, and you got uh, 20 bucks here, whatever. Of course, you got your, your dough, and then they're going to drive you home. Well, you know that they're liquored up, and back then, nobody cared. It wasn't like, uh, you know, be this is yeah. before Mothers Against Drunk Driving, which is all fine. I get it. But at the time, it was a different time. And so then they'd drive you home. And they'd been in Ballard. And there was dances, and there was fun. And back in the day... They were at the smoke shop. Probably. And back then, well, they didn't take their wives there too often. But even back then, you could take a bottle. You, you could bring your own bottle of wine or whatever you wanted. And you could go to different pubs and put it on the bar yourself and then have at it. And they'd just sell you the mixer and stuff. So it wasn't always the way it is today. And so they, <laughs> you know, they'd give me a ride home. And of course... Tor or his wife is like, ah, you know, I know they had a few drinks. Here, here's another 20, 30, but whatever. Yeah. So, I mean, I was saving all that money, which is how I got the El Camino, basically. And then, and then uh, it, just, it just instilled a work ethic in you, I think. Because, you know, I wasn't blowing it like, a, like an asshole. I was trying to save, save, save. And, of course, when the Mustang came around, I still tried to save. And uh, I remember I got a break from my old man. Uh, he bought, he helped, he put the pistons and I think the crankshaft uh, on the boat. So we went through Marine Works on that one. So the guys that were rebuilding our engines at the time, you know, Mike McCool, he, he got a deal on that. And then I remember I swapped out those pistons and uh, he saw them in the garage. He's like, what are those? I go, ah, oh, pistons. Well, I didn't want the nine to one. I wanted ten and a half to one compression. We knew that that was better for if you're going to hype up your engine, you got to have the right stuff. And I know he knew that I was pulling a fast one because he had already paid for the original version, but we wanted aftermarket stuff. So I think he let me slip on that one. He let me go by. Anyway, so the engine was great, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, uh, I know going across the Ballard Bridge here, uh, my brother was in the back seat, Norman, but I had the seat folded down because I had a nitrous bottle there. And when I got on that bridge and hit that button, swear to God, he, I, I, he pinned him into the window and he stayed in that. He was like a freaking fly stuck in that window, like flat, you know. And uh, so she had a lot of giddy up. I remember going to school one time and uh, the... Uh, uh, I was late. I'm always late. And uh, come around the corner, and I had no idea there was an undercover cop car behind me. Um, and just bang, took off, you know, after the, got around the corner, got into the parking lot, got the car parked, grabbed my books, shut the door, and then I heard this bang, 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 you know, and this old piece of shit, whatever he was driving, was smashing up on the side of the, you know, trying to get into the entrance and, you know, up and over the curb. And and uh, this guy comes screeching. I'm starting to run him from my car to get to school. And then he screeches in front of me in the parking lot. He's like, you little, you know, so-and-so, stop. <laughs> what is it? I'm late for school. I'm a cop. And, you, you know, and he's yelling at me like, what the hell's wrong with you? You know, what are you doing? I said, I'm late. And he's just like, get the hell over here. And, get the, you know, the third, give me the, the riot act. 
and uh, you're not going anywhere, and his car's all bent to shit because he didn't know how to drive, and uh, I'm already parked and ready to go, and then, uh, of course, I got a big ticket for that one, um, late for school, of course, and then, uh, you know, but I never saw him. And, and he said, he goes, I, he goes, I couldn't keep up with you. He goes, what the fuck you got in that thing? Like, what? He said, he, he, he tried. He said, I was right behind you, and you're gone. <laughs> then I was right behind you, and you're did, gone. Did you push the nitrous, or you just were? <laughs> no, I didn't. No, no, no. And uh, you know, half the time with that nitrous bottle, because it just came out. I was probably the only kid in that neighborhood that had that. And, uh, <laughs> and then... Uh, my brothers were always sucking on Norman used to, he would, he would suck on that bottle or like take hits off it just for fun, you know? And, uh, uh, I know one time, you know, in the morning, all the guys showed up early and there's a big parking lot at school. So all the guys, we just parked in a giant circle. We basically took up the whole parking lot just to be jerks, giant circle of hot rods. Well, everybody else that went to school, you know, by the time they got there, because we were early just being jerks, you know, had to go park in the street or find something else. And But nobody messed with the cars. Nobody keyed them or anything like that. Um, anyway, just a lot of stories about that. But uh, never grew up when it came to that stuff, and that was always fun. When I did go fishing full-time, I ended up giving the car to Edgar. He ended up parting it out, so I always wanted to get that car back, but... Uh, but he parted out for parts and stuff like that. Probably smoking dope and being a jerk. And and uh, so, never saw that one again. I think there's some parts around. I might just go find those parts and start from there. What uh, what year was it that you went full-time fishing? Uh, that was 84. So, I was 18 in 84. So, as soon as I got my diploma, I left like, you know, pretty much the next day. Couldn't get out of there fast enough. Yeah. And I always made a promise to my old man uh, and my mother, you know, you know, I mean, when you were, when all of your heroes are, are even the guys that were just five years older, like Fritjof and Manger and these guys, you know, uh, they had a few years on us, but they, they were, we got to see a little bit of the heyday in the summers and we got to experience it through, through them vicariously. But what, uh, you know, you're stuck in school and... There was a time when, you know, like when you're 16, 17, 18, you're like, I want to get the hell out of here. Mm -hmm. And I was supposed to get out of there. Or in my mind, I didn't want to be there. And I made that very clear. And then uh, I, I remember dad telling me, he goes, look, just do me a favor. He goes, you, you can fish all your life. He goes, but if you, if you get this diploma, he goes, you know, for our family, he goes, because nobody's educated. Like in Norway... By the time you were 14, you're out. You know, you you either you were you, you went to work. Period. You know, you're confirmed at 14, which I, I did. I promised I would do. Uh, in the old country, when you're 14, a lot of guys they went to merchant marines, or they went fishing, or you started farming or something like that. <laughs> it was a trade, trade schools, things like that. Or uh, you could choose to go to school, but most of the guys that were on the coast, didn't really take that option, at least in that generation. And that's the generation that inspired me. And I know after I got a taste of the excitement and the, you know, taste a couple of bucks, of course, when you did good. And we had our bum seasons where we made nothing, but uh, you still had that taste of freedom. 
And so I wanted nothing to do with that school uh, after that. And, and he just goes, just promise me you'll do that. If you do that, I'll help you with anything you want. Anything. And so I did. I stuck to it. Didn't like it. And, uh, and then as soon as I got the diploma, you know, of course, that goes into your drawer. <laughs> you're gone. So, and so in 80, yeah, 84, then it was uh, full on, full steam ahead. You know, never missed a season. You know, it started right out of the gate with St. Matthew's there. Then we went into red king crab season for, for the Bering Sea red king crab. And then, and then after that, it was full speed into, uh, into uh, Baird Eye or out west because out west along the chain, you know, uh, you could fish red king crab there for your winter season in, in December uh, or November. You'd fish, uh, you'd fish uh, red king crab and you could also get a Baird Eye license uh, out there. Uh, brown crab, you know, we were doing that in 80, shit, 85, 6. Um, and then, and then, of course, the paleo were starting to come on pretty good. Um, you know, Norman fished the paleo in '83 during that summer when I was in Bristol Bay, and he made a lot of money. Or '82, it was '82 or '83, I think it was one of the first years, and this was one of the first boats to participate. And uh, they're getting like twenty cents a pound or something like that. Um, but they fished volume, and they were doing it in the summers, you know. And so he got to go up and they're doing it all winter, but then he got to participate in summer. So I was jealous of him because he made a lot more dough. Yeah. And, uh, and then, so that was 83. How many, how many years were you able to fish with your dad? I didn't fish. Um, you know, after 84, he would come up once in a while to do uh, like a king crab season. He liked king crab, uh, but Tom was running the boat for the most part. Uh, or he'd like to go out to Adak and fish. So what we say Adak, it's out west along the chain. And, that, you know, that was October, November, December. So he liked that because it reminded him of when he was, you know, first starting out. Um, and, of course, King Crab was more money. And, it, you know, it was faster. So I got a few seasons with him there. Um, you know, a couple when I was a teenager, but not, not much. Not as much as I would have liked, I suppose. But he knew that I was going to end up here probably, and he, uh, and that was fine. And he had already, uh, you know, the story goes, you know, he was the only guy back in the day to buy a single owner, uh, out of, at least out of our community, to buy a boat single owner, and he paid for it pretty much for gross the same amount the first year. And, uh, you know, so he was off to a good start at that point in his life. So then he would have been 30, 40, 20. Yeah, he was 40 years old. So he had a real good start uh, right there. And then, of course, this was his baby. And, uh, you know, he got into, uh, in 86, he got into the Scandies Rose, which at the time was the Enterprise. And, you know, after the, you got to understand, after the collapse of King Crab 79, or, you know, they shut it down in 80, uh, 84, they restarted it. So I got it right in on the restart there. And Dad was here. Um, and we did good. I think we had a tank of crab. I think we did like 50, 60,000 pounds, which is very good. And then uh, we started uh, started that. 
we were up in the Compass Rose, which is way up north. And I remember we had plumpful pods. There were just a lot of females. And you could dig out, you know, 10, 15, if you're lucky, big ones. So they were full pots, plumpful. Every pot went on deck. Every pot, we didn't have a sorting table, so everything went into totes. If the weather was decent, we just dump them on deck. And then you had a shit shoot over on the starboard side, and we made a makeshift broom, and everything was just going over the side. But the, it's the numbers that matter. We were getting a few numbers. Um, but God, what a bunch of work, man. You went through boots and rain gear because they're, you know, plumpful pots of baby king crab. Um, so we made that work. Uh, God, I squished a lot of crap through that shit shoot. Fuck. Uh, oh my God, that was a lot of, a lot of work. Because um, we didn't have the table, you know. And then, you paying your dues. I am, man. I mean, you're you, tearing up your, your boots like they were nothing. Yeah, so I mean, it was a lot of work. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, back then, you know, you were never home because you had so many different seasons you could fish. Um, you know, starting off full speed like that, you had king crab, you went into the, you know, your, your, your tanner crab season, you went over to fish out west in, uh, in, in Adak, we call it, which is an island out west, but you had multiple uh, different fisheries out there. And then, uh, then back to Apelio, where, you know, this boat was one of the first to start doing Apelio. Um, I think it was 82 or 83 and I think we were 83 and then that's when the market started being created and that basically saved this fleet the crab fleet because king crab when we had the collapse in 80 uh, a lot of guys lost you know they had big investments and they lost their 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 ass um, and so you had a lot of boats that were being auctioned off because they had to go through that waiting period of three years, four years, whatever it was. And uh, so it was like a whole new beginning. And during that time, that's when also the, 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 the Pollock started getting to be a, a popular fish. So a lot of these original boats like the Northwestern that have a house forward, they were all being converted into trawlers with the big gantries and the reels to go dragging for fish. So we were still crabbing and with the Apelio market building more and more, then you could fish opies for, you know, we'd start in, well, even then uh, it was no uh, main, you could, you could fish them all year pretty much. Uh, by 85, six, you know, then you're, you had that January, middle of January start. Um, and uh, so you'd fish, God, we, I mean, we fished opies all the way through July. And then ran that first year, 84-5, we would fish opies through January, through all summer. And then I think we fished into July or August, I think it was something like that. And we rigged over and started fishing St. Matthew's blue crab because you were already fishing so far up north for opies that you just jump in from one season to the next and you could get your boat registered uh, from fishing game at the island. So we never stopped. Um, I mean, the most time I took, uh, the most I did was, I think, a little, about a six-month stretch without going home. You'd go home for maybe a couple of weeks in between, or if you had a trip off, you'd do that. 
And then by 85, we were, we hired another guy, extra man, uh, which was my, was my brother. Anyway, you know, we would, we would rotate. So we'd take a trip off and then go four man deck and then take a trip off. You know what I mean? Just take a trip off each because the seasons were going that long. So going home, you weren't going home uh, and spending as much time as you did these days. And when you did, you'd go nuts. You know? Let's hear about that. Well, I mean, you, I'm just saying, you'd go nuts. And so by the time, you know, like I gave my other fancy hot rod to, to Edgar, because he was still in school. Well, by the time he got out of school, he was 17, I think. And so he uh, he came up here at the age of 17. Yeah, then, by then I was 22, and uh, which was the first year I ran the boat. But but before that, <coughs> we, uh, you know, you'd go home for a couple of weeks. Uh, or when if you did have a month at home, you're in shipyard every day because you'd come down. You're always building new crab pots, uh, you know, rigging gear. You're in Ballard. You're painting the boat, the whole nine yards. And then at night, you know, you would uh, go hit the town and you know, you're being a naughty boys, plain and simple. And I know, uh, you know, after I started full time, of course, even before then, I, uh, I was getting, I had a place with a guy named Johan Manes, who his father's name was Borgie, who was one of the guys that helped with the, the Swasson family that created the Starfleet. And so Borgie is a legendary fisherman. And, and there was five brothers there. And his brother's married to Cindy, who is the daughter to Corey Ness, who is, you know, part of the uh, owner of the Trident Seafoods Corporation. So it's a small world in this neighborhood, yeah. put it that way. And so, uh, you know, you'd run around and, and of course, then we're making pretty good money. Uh, and half my buddies, you know, they get in trouble with Uncle Sam because they were spending it faster than they could make it. And next thing you know, uh, you know, uh, hundred grand in taxes, and they're like, "What the hell just happened?" And and so yeah, you had a lot of fun. And I remember, yeah, my brother uh, parted out my Mustang, so I ended up so I bought another like a Corvette or something. Yeah, it was an eighty. The hell was that? Eighty-one Corvette, I think, or eighty something like that. But it was a nice car, and. When you were going nuts, you know, and you're and you're living with another fisherman, and you had a calendar on your refrigerator, and basically you had every ladies' night marked off on that calendar, where you knew where to go, what day of the week, to go to the right spot for ladies' night, right? We weren't married, and uh, of course back then, yeah, you might have been drinking and driving a little bit, right? And of course, you did. Uh, but, you, you know, uh, if it was that crazy, you'd take a cab. Um, but then back then you didn't have Uber and all this stuff and Lyft. So you couldn't really snap your finger. And if you were in a bar and uh, you, you were getting stupid and you did need a cab or they're like, no, no, I don't drive. You know, I just don't take the chance, which, you know, you'd listen to reason. Then uh, you'd you would uh, you'd have to wait maybe till friggin four in the morning because there just wasn't anything available, especially up in the north end. That was the problem. You're like, wait, you know, if you could hop in an Uber and snap your finger, of course you would. But waiting for a cab for two, three hours when you want to get from A to B because you want to go to the next hotspot, 
well, shit, you're going to drive. That's just how it was. And, uh, you know, smashed a few cars. I never wrecked the Mustang, but I know that vet, uh, I remember us going from A to B, trying to find another, the next spot. And uh, we're in Edmonds, and I was racing Leif, who was the guy I was telling you about that's married to Cindy. Now. He, uh, and he's a few years older than I am, and, and he was in a Trans Am. I had the vet, and, and uh, I was all thought I was Mr. Cool because I'd been fishing and, you know, playing that game. And uh, we went around uh, Edmonds Way, and by the time I got to the corner, I don't know. I think I might have hit the brakes a little too hard because that car spun around in circles and it started doing 360s. Of course, he beat me, but I beat myself because I hit the brakes too hard. So by the time he got around the corner, I'm going over through a 20-foot embankment, through a fence, through the trees. Thank God I was going backwards because when I landed through the trees and hit the, hit the dirt, you know, uh, it was backwards. So I just got thrown into the seat. And you never wore seat belts, right? And uh, so now I'm like revving up. I got to get out of here. Well, the car ain't going anywhere. I mean, it looked like a friggin' teepee. It looked like it was broken into, and all the wheels were sideways. It looked like, uh, you know, in Back to the Future when the wheels split out. Yeah. I'm like, oh, no. So I, you know, like, God dang it. So I get out of the car and uh, climb up the rockery. And uh, like I said, it, it was like Dukes of Hazard. I mean, it bang, and just flew through the air, flew through the trees, landed. And then I get up the embankment. <coughs> Had it gone the other way, uh, you'd have been through the windshield. It was just stupidity. But when you're young, you think, you just don't think. Yeah. You know, I just wanted to win the race. Yeah. And because uh, he ended up next to me, and we're probably going to the same place, <laughs> which is Sophia Maria Brown's, which is where all the fishermen hung out, uh, up in the north end. And then, uh, but, but he turned around and he's, he's laughing, get in the car. <laughs> so, and I mean, big chunk of the, you know, the sidewalk was gone and, you know, this fence that was there and the barrier to protect you from going over, it was all gone. So we uh, drove just down the street to an apartment complex. Of course, that's where Cindy was staying. Uh, and they were dating at the time and uh, go in there. And I'm like, God, what do I do? What do I do? And uh, so I called the cops and I said, well, you know, I'm reporting an accident. And they go, well, why weren't you uh, at the scene? I said, I think I'm in shock. So I'm just calling you to let you, we didn't have cell phone. I'm just calling to let you know, uh, you know, crash the car so-and-so and, uh, you know, might want to come check it out. <laughs> so the next morning I drove by and then, there's this boom truck, you know, and they got this crane and they're lifting up this mangled piece of fiberglass and putting it on the flatbed. I'm just laughing. Going, oh, what the hell did I do? Um, dodged a bullet, you know, another time. Uh, so I had another, it was a Thunderbird I had or something like that. And You and this Thunderbird. Same thing. So then I, you know, I was, I was going to go home to, and then at that time I, I just bought a house for myself and uh, up in the north end and I don't know being an idiot racing home and ended up putting that car through uh, one of the neighbor's yards and 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 uh, I hit this rock smashed the rock in half and the car looked like a banana you know 
but the son of a bitch drove. It still managed to get out of there. And so I, I got the car out of there. And I don't know how I got in the garage because it looked like a banana. And uh, the next, and of course, all the fishermen showed up and we were having a good time. Uh, and it was really early in the morning. Next thing you know, here comes these lights and here's the cops looking through the windows and banging on the door. And uh, I thought, well, what was the problem? You know, I mean, I smoked, I broke the guy's yard, but I didn't, you know. And uh, so everybody down. So we got all these guys crawling on the floor, you know. Like, don't answer the door. Don't answer that damn door. <laughs> they finally leave. And uh, and the next morning, uh, I, uh, uh, one of the guys that was still there, because we stayed up all night, and we you only had a little while. And then you had to leave again. So we're trying to jam all this fun into a couple of weeks, right? And so <laughs> drove down the street, and I said, let's go see what happened here. Car looks like a, you know, like it's just, I don't know how I got it in the garage. And then uh, there I remember there was a, and to me, he looked like an old man, probably was. And he's out there in his slippers and his robe, got a newspaper under his arm. And he, I think he was smoking a pipe or something like that. And uh, we drove by real slow and he's shaking his head. And I go, oh boy, what did I do, you know? I said, let's just go in and talk to him. So he went in, and then uh, he said, can I help you? I said, sir, I did the damage to your yard here. That, that was me. And he's like, really? And I said, yeah, and I want to apologize. And, uh, and I said, uh, you know, uh, I forget what it was. I just said, I'll fess up and apologize. I, was, I did that, and uh, I know I'm responsible. <laughs> and so the man looks at me, and he goes, that's pretty, pretty good. And he goes, uh, of course, it's rockery was smashed up and all that he goes how much you got on you i think i had like a hundred bucks or a couple hundred bucks something like that cash we always had cash in our pocket and at that time i didn't believe in credit cards so i had cash and uh uh a couple hundred bucks something he goes well you give me the money and uh, and we'll forget all about it and then he and he took the dough and he said you know you really impressed me for doing that so i got out of that one and then, uh, you know, so we, we were always, even, Jesus criminy, even when I was uh, 16, I got busted with my Mustang doing around 60 through a stop sign. And they, they grabbed me. And then I remember I got my own attorney when I was 16. And then the guy uh, goes, and I remember the cop took my statement or something like that because we did have a beer. I did have a beer in my system and you're under 21. And the, you know, the cop goes, well, what were you doing? I said, I went to Buddy Fisherman's house. He goes, you know you're doing 60 through a stop sign? I said, yeah, well, I wanted to go home real bad. I was late, whatever. And uh, the truth is there was a girl that was there that I had no interest in. And, you know, she made it very obvious that uh, she had interest the other way. Mm -hmm. I couldn't get out of that place fast enough. And that's the truth. So then I got busted for that. And then they, uh, they, uh, he said, well, yeah, what were you doing there? Uh, you know, I take the statement in the station. And I said, well, I was socializing. And he goes, boy, that's a clever statement for a little kid. 
He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I called the, didn't want my mommy and daddy to find out, you know. So I talked to some lawyer and I told the lawyer, I said, I've got to get out of this thing here. <laughs> and the guy, he goes, he was really, he said, uh, some of my statements, is that was, uh, what the hell did he say? Something like, uh, for such a precarious young age, I'm surprised that you went to that extent or something like that. Anyway, long story short, because, uh, you know, uh, underage and all that, they, they, they let it go. They didn't call your parents? No, they didn't call anybody, and they, and they let the whole thing go. Hmm. So I got lucky there. Dodged that bullet. Then I think, uh, then I was 22. And uh, got in trouble there. And they, they uh, let that go. Don't worry about it, you know. But back then it was different. And you could bribe your way out of certain things, you know. Even even at, at the same age, you know, early 20s, uh, you know, uh, I remember Johan and I, because we were, you know, lit, staying together in the same apartment complex, you know, we uh, needed a Coast Guard. We didn't need a Coast Guard license, but at the time they were really, that was like the new thing. And so if your boat's under tonnage, you don't need it. We're under 200 tons. But I did it for liability just because, well, you got to, you know, I was, that's right when I started running the boat. I said, well, I might as well have a license so that you show that you're competent. So we did the license in about uh, a month, which typically takes most guys four or five months. And we jammed in, for, you know, we partied every night and we jammed information in our head and you know hung over as hell and we had even uh, went so far as to hire a tutor come and help us and when he didn't we jump over the railing to hide from the tutor because i didn't want to study at the time studied on my own time but then it was come time to testing and we were going to go fish for a paleo going to be gone for months and i knew if i didn't get that test done that i'd forget all the information i just jammed in my head and then you'd have to start all over. And no one's going to do that because we didn't have the time. Coast Guard guy tells me, no, I can't test you. You know, uh, I got a list here and, and uh, it's going to be a month. I said, a month? I go, I'll be, I'll be gone for five at least. You know, went in the next day. I had a box of king crab. And I threw it on his desk. Bang! Hit, thing hits the desk and I go, can I test now? And he looks at me. He goes, I'll see you tomorrow. Awesome. Yeah. So then I go in for the test and uh, I bribed him with, with king crab, which is fine. And then the guy, the guy uh, is looking over my shoulder and was, I think I was on one of the chart tests or something. And you, I think you'd only miss one or two. And uh, he looks and goes, you might want to check that answer right there. You know, and like, oh, son of a gun. He's right. And I changed it. So I got the license and uh, went fishing and, and uh, that was a good one. And then. Right around the same time, uh, you know, it already smashed a couple of cars and dodged bullets. And then uh, uh, this boat, the Northwestern, was going to tie up and go to, you know, the guys were going to Seattle. And I'm still hungry. <coughs> and uh, I, uh, so I got a job on the boat laying next to us in Dutch Harbor. And they... Uh, they were going to uh, go fish brown crab that winter for, for through the holidays, and they needed a deckhand slash cook. 
and I might have been 19, 20, something like that. Um, so I, I got the job. Guys fly home. We're going to fly home the next day on our boat. And I threw my bag over the rail, and, I, and, I, and it was a little bit icy, and I jumped over the rail, you know, like everybody does. I sprained my ankle, and I forget his name. Well, I do know the name, but I won't say it. And uh, uh, sprained my ankle. He's like, shit, I can't use you. And I said, just give it a week. It'll, you know, I can run the crane, do whatever you need. Uh, I just can't uh, run. It was all swollen. And he goes, no, can't do it. And so uh, I lost the job. And then uh, <laughs> uh, had to go home for the holidays, which I didn't want to, because those guys were making real good money. Uh, I think they were doing, you know, between five and $10,000 a trip back then for brown crab. And uh, a couple of days later, I heard the boat went down uh, on the way out west. So had I been on that boat, I'm fairly certain that I would have been with them. And there were no survivors on that one. So that was a, you know, pretty lucky deal for me. Um, and then, of course, you talk, you know, you think about times on this one, you know, where we've been close to catastrophe, uh, icing down to the point where, you know, it's, you wouldn't think she was coming back. Uh, we had iced her down so bad. And I've told this story many times, but, you know, where uh, she was going down on the nose and then wave hit, knocked her on her side and it, it stayed there for so long, it was long enough to where we could bust ice and we busted ice it took us, you know, 16 hours something like that, and we finally got the boat, uh, you know to where we could work on it efficiently, that's where all the time went, but uh, just to get the main stuff off, took that hours and uh, that was just being greedy and stupid and that's when I was running the boat myself as a, as a younger guy <coughs> um, you know things like that so you start looking about all these times that you, you, you dodge bullets you know where you, you shouldn't even be here um, there was hell even on this boat uh, my brother Edgar was gonna I was, we were in Dutch Harbor um, I slipped for some reason got out of one of the taxis there and, and fell fell with my face in the uh, in the ice and then Edgar uh, I was supposed to take the boat down and Edgar's like well just fly home I'll take it you know he just wanted to take it down and we don't need a full crew to take it down you need three four guys so he ends up taking it down I end up uh, uh, flying home a couple of days a day later and then a day after that, when I got home, uh, I remember I woke up and uh, and I looked in the mirror and my face, uh, you look like the elephant man, you know? You could stick a golf ball up my nostril. I thought my, and I'm screaming at my wife, I thought she poisoned me or something. <laughs> and she drove me to the emergency and next thing you know, it's a staph infection. And had I had that infection, had I taken the boat down, I wouldn't have known it till a day or so after, which that would have put us way out in the Gulf. 
And the lady said, no, you only got a few hours left and you wouldn't be here. I didn't know what a staph infection was. And then, uh, so I'm thinking to myself, holy crap, if I had, you know, taken that boat, man, that would have been a bad one for me. And then, uh, you know, just on this last little giddy up, uh, you know, I had a heart attack and thank God we were just right out of town and close enough to where we could get to help, dodged a bullet there. And then, and then like a year or so later, uh, we were in Norway visiting family, of course, and I was doing some things and, uh, <laughs> I, I, uh, I was traveling across the country because I, I had a clothing line I was exploiting. And the next thing you know, uh, I get an ear infection because we were way up in the northern part of Norway, so I think that's where I got it, cold, you know. And we flew home. I was going to hop on the boat for our crab season, fly to Alaska. And I go to the dentist because you want to get yourself checked up before you go. So I've always made a good habit about that. If you don't want cavities or something in the middle of Bering Sea and screw up your season. So I say, yeah, I got an ear infection. He goes, oh, I'll give you some antibiotics. So he gives me these antibiotics. I've taken them before. I take, and I, I take them, uh, and I figured I'd better start taking them now. So my wife and I are driving from there downtown, take care of business because I'm leaving in a day or two. Took the antibiotics, and son of a gun, my, my, my hand starts swelling up. I'm driving down the interstate. And I'm on the phone, and I'm, my voice starts squeaking like a little girl. My head, you, you, you're swelling up. So I have this allergic reaction to these antibiotics. And I uh, pull into the, there's a hospital sign, like, oh, shit, you know, emergency, bang. Head for that, going through red lights, <laughs> go, uh, uh, parked it right, in the, right on the sidewalk. I grabbed that bottle of uh, antibiotics and I, I ran in and I threw my, uh, it was group health at the time or whatever, threw my card on the table, threw the pills on the table, pointed at my throat and the ladies like, holy shit, you know, so they got me in there, same thing, you know, the IVs and all that and an EpiPen and all this stuff and they, they figured that out and she goes, yeah, you were choking out, 10, 15 minutes, gone. And I found out that as you get older, your body reacts differently to different uh, meds. And I'd taken this antibiotic before, I remember, a time or two on the boat, but it, it didn't want, it didn't like it that time. Had I taken those antibiotics on the boat in Dutch Harbor, it would have been a different ball game, most likely. <coughs> so then when we go home, my wife goes, you know those pills you got? And she opens up the drawer in, my, in the bathroom, she's like, and she pulls out the same bottle from the same dentist under the same circumstances a year before. I was going to take him with me to Alaska because I was flying up. I had the same damn thing in there. Had I taken those with me a year before, I probably would have took them out at sea, you know. And then uh, what are you going to do? And then when I was in the hospital for that one, they hit me with an EpiPen. Or whatever, you know, whatever they call it. So now I'm going into, uh, now my body, you know, it kind of shocks your body. Well, that brings on another heart attack, which they didn't notice right away. And they were going to check me out. And then they wanted to put you on a treadmill, and all of a sudden they get this call like, 
get him off that thing right away. You know, it's a mild heart attack or whatever. It was there because of the epi. And so, you know, that was another little giddy up. So, I mean, you, you know, you start dodging bullets more and more and more. And you look back and you're thinking, God. You went through a full magazine. Yeah, man. I'm afraid to count because I don't want to hit that nine lives kitty cat syndrome. But that's how I feel sometimes, you know. Yeah. And uh, especially, you know, I mean, crashing cars, being an idiot. And then even when you get older, you're trying to be safer. And you still can't stop it. So, no, there's a lot of. A lot of stuff like that that we've done over the years and uh, and you know for me uh, looking back it's kind of like uh, you know pretty lucky guy but then you look at all the, the the friends you've lost and all the boats that are going down and and uh, and it just makes you wonder uh, you know could could have been you I don't want it um, so you know you know anyway so at the time uh, you know we're fishing all all these uh, months on end and then uh, uh, I'm 22 years old, um, and uh, who, how was that now? I think my, who was it? Tom needed to go home for, for some reason, and, you know, it, we loved him as a captain. He, same age as my father, just a great guy. He's just, just amazing what he did. Uh, so he had to go, and then Dad was looking for another captain for this boat, and Manger and these other guys were on here and then uh, they're communicating back and forth to Seattle trying to figure out a guy and I remember Manger I don't know if I was 21 or 22 I think it was 22 he's like what are you doing you know uh, I can't find anybody up here and he wanted to run a boat as well but he didn't want to take it from me he goes let him do it or no he had already just got his job that's what it was running the western Viking that's how it went and then he was talking to the Omegas, let him do it. And then uh, he's like, don't you think that's young? And he's like, no, he can do it. And, uh, and so the old, my old man was up here, it was up in Dutch. And Walter Christensen, who was running one of the, he was running the Aleutian number one, which is a 122 foot white Marco, just gorgeous boat. And Walt had been in the industry for a long time real famous guy and uh, uh, we were laying out there by the Trident Dock I think and uh, Magni Ness was up there and he's uh, another very legendary figure still alive today and then uh, they were looking so dad was going to run it or is looking for another guy to run it and you know I think they thought it was kind of comical at the time Mangers like just Give it to your son. No, I'm lying. I was in Seattle. That was another time. I was in Seattle. And that's when Manger mentioned it. And then the end, I was, I was actually, I was sick for a little bit. And then he, dad got a hold of me and said, you know what, uh, the guy's, the guys are asking if you can do it and I hardly even remember answering because they want you to take it when you get back up there that's how the that's how it went down and I said sure I didn't realize what the hell I was saying I said, sure next thing you know we're up there that's what was going on and then so I had agreed to it because the crew wanted me to run the boat 
They didn't want some other, they didn't want some old guy they didn't know. That's how that went down. And then uh, we got up and then the old man followed to Dutch. That's what it was. He was going to take it out for the first trip to show the ropes, so to speak. And then he was with Magni. And then they kind of, Magni was telling him, just leave the guy alone, Sverry. And they were standing on the dock. He was just leave him alone. So he was supposed to go out with me, show me the ropes. They thought that was a chuckle. I'm sure they had a little bit of Thunderbird and probably thought that was funny as hell. And then, uh, so they just pretty much showed, showed me like, you know, here's the area, here's what's going on. Walt came by the boat and he's like, yeah, just follow me out there. And then I'll go do my thing and, and you do you, but we'll get you in the right area. And then we got up there, yeah. And then uh, pretty much, you know, you, you do your goodbyes and all that stuff. It was time to, to get going. <clears throat> and this is, I think this is like when, uh, right around the, t this is right at the time when uh, the Opie fisheries, they were switching regulations all the time to where you had, uh, first it was like a north-south. So, you you know, you before it was all one area, then they started regulating more. So then you'd fish the southern area below the 58 line degrees, and then it was open to the north. And I think before that, it was east and west. It was it was east of 173 we fished, and then they opened it up west of 173. So I'm trying to think. I think it was west of 173 back then is what they had as a regulation, which was a new regulation. So it was a fresh new start. So that's how that was because they didn't want some other dude running the boat. And uh, and so that's how I got my break. And uh, Been there ever since. Yeah, and so, you know, the, the old man and his buddy stayed in town, did what they wanted to do, and through the lines, I followed Walter out there. And how, did, how did you do the first trip? Well, I mean, there was there was a lot of crab around, you know, a lot of garbage crab. So I think we did all right. I mean, uh, I was, I was, I was, uh, I, I knew from watching Tom kind of the ins and outs on, on all that. And I'd hauled a few pots before with him and, and the old man, but nothing like that. Um, it was nice weather, thank God. Uh, and as far as that goes, you know, setting too close or if you're on a good number, you know, trying to put them right back in the same spot. You know, it wasn't very efficient at all. It was horrible. Actually, I was it was terrible. <laughs> but, I mean, there was still crap. So you couldn't really screw it up that bad. And uh, I think we had a four-man deck. But the guys, you know, we were on crab. And so we were still able to produce and then it was just a learning curve you just learned as you went you know and figured it out you just had to figure it out on your own you know as far as the distance between one the timing that's where it was really bad and you know uh that's right about when Edgar got on the boat he didn't know any difference but you know put I put him through hell absolute hell because nothing was fast enough for me and you're jamming them down their throat but you're you don't realize what you're doing at the time. So you're so hungry and driven that you're putting your ego first before their needs. So it was, it was, and they never argued it. And that's right about when Edgar, my brother jumped on as a 17 year old, cause he wasn't staying in school and uh, going through his own turmoils. And so there's like time to get the kid out of town. So that's kind of how that happened. I know it's a little wishy-washy, because I'm trying to remember everything the way it was. But uh, in any event, 
<coughs> it was I was fortunate to, to, to get that. I didn't think that it was going to happen that early. I figured it was going to happen eventually someday. And quite frankly, I'd already been offered jobs on other boats. Odvar wanted me on his boat. And my old man sabotaged that. <laughs> so, you know, I was supposed to be working on the Nordic Viking, the Silver Wave. Uh, and, you know, because of their loyalty to him, you know, I mean, I, you know, I was saying yes to everything because I wanted to just yep. go. And uh, I know when I had the job with Odvar, uh, next thing you know, he's like, no, I can't take you, uh, you know, for whatever reason. Then you find out years later why, mm -hmm. Dad. you know, because you're drinking together. And then he admits to me, yeah, that, you know, the old man stepped in like nah. So he, he kind of cock blocked a lot of situations for his own needs I would think and pride but at the end of the day I don't blame him because he knew that whatever I did was going to be the best for family the family business the boat you know he, he already knew that and you can't ask for more than that you really can't mm -hmm. it's kind of like how I look at Mandy today I know she's going to put her heart into it speaking of which uh, we had uh, a gal write in and ask a question uh, Chrissy Love out of I think Illinois Asked, do you see uh, this family legacy continuing? And obviously you do. But what pride do you have in that? Well, I mean, it's all about pride, really. And after a while, it's not about money. or it's, The boat's just a piece of steel, you know. Um, you know, I, I know that, uh, you know, my old man wanted to sell it, you know, years ago. Um, I'm like, don't do that. You know, it looks like we may get a quota system and things will be different. And I don't think that's the right move. And he's like, well, it's, you know, if you guys want to continue, then do it. So it just depends on how you look at it. You know, for me, it's always been because, you know, it is a part of legacy and, and family and tr tradition, all that stuff. But at the end of the day, it is just a job. And if you painted this thing blue instead of white, it would be a different boat. It's just... You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. And and you do see things different as you get older. So as a younger man, you know, for me, it was all about, yeah, the, the family legacy thing. I think I, it was about pride. Um, and you got to remember when you're younger, uh, like Mandy, for example, you, you see every boat is like its own team. You know, especially back then you had, like we had crew members on here over 20 years. You know, I mean, it was just, and that's because of the family dynamic, because they were always paid well and respected. And it wasn't a company mentality where you're, you're just a number. And so guys stayed. We were always busy. Um, and the old man was very fair with people, you know. So, uh, you know, if you needed a draw, you got one. If, hell, uh, one of the Norwegian guys wanted to buy a car. He's like, he goes, I just bought it for you. Now go work. You pay it off, pay me out, you know what I mean? Things like that. So different dynamic. And yeah, that brings you back to different times in your life. Uh, right now, why would I, you know, ask myself, why would I take away a legacy or potential for our kids or grandkids if that's what they want to do? And that's great. And if you can hand something down, super, you know. You know, this was, half of this was handed down after his death, but then the other half was purchased. You know, we bought that out and then we bought more quota as a team of brothers to, you know, exploit the business and make it bigger. 
So we had to buy our way in as well. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so that being said, uh, it just depends on, on where you are at what point in, in life time, you know. Mm -hmm. um, you know, after, you know, like when I, uh, you know, when, when I found out dad was blocking me uh, for jobs here and there, and then, you know, a couple years later, you know, there was opportunity to buy into both. Um, same thing. And I was like, I went to the bank. I got my own loan. I was ready to go. I knew what I value I could do. And Odvar was another one. He's like, uh, it was the Ocean Hunter. Wanted to buy that. And he goes, I'll, you know, I need a partner. And he goes, I want you. So for some reason, like these old timers, or I saw them as old timers back then. They were still young guys in their prime, mm -hmm. but they wanted me because they knew that I was, I believe that they knew I was going to give 100% to the boat, mm -hmm. no matter what boat it was, especially if you owned in it at that early age. You know, another example, 1986 rolls around and uh, uh, that's when a dad and a guy named Sigmund Andreessen, who's a, another Norwegian guy, same town, and big reputation, man. He's, he's one of the best. And uh, him and Sig bought the Enterprise. Dad found the deal. Uh, from what I understand, it was on the auction block in 86. And big, beautiful bender, right? Uh, which was today was the Scandies Rose. And, and, uh, but it was, it was deemed a bad luck boat at the time. And when that boat... Uh, you know, for king crab season, they hit them, filled the boat, as far as I understand, but all the paint in the tanks fell off. For the primer, whatever happened, so they poisoned the whole load of crab. And so they lost that. And then, somewhere along the line, the story goes, uh, one of the old roll cranes that they had on there, and we had the same one on the Northwestern, uh, that, from my understanding, that broke off the pedestal and kills the captain or something like that. So the Enterprise was like de doomed, you know what I mean? She finally goes to auction. Opie season starts coming around, getting more uh, profitable. And so, and boats have been switching hands and trading owners and, and whatever. Guys that invested at the wrong time got screwed. Guys that invested in the right time, that just perfect timing, were doing it. And next thing you know, uh, they, they bought that boat at auction. Dad was a silent partner for just under a million bucks with the boat, the fuel, all the gear, and the reconditioning for less than a million bucks, sailed out the Ballard Locks, and Sigmund, he, Sig just killed it, you know, for those couple of years till 1988 rolls around. <coughs> so now you got 1988, you got me and my brothers fishing on this thing, and then... Uh, uh, they weren't getting along as partners, and they were they had done so well with that boat. Uh, and Sigmund had fished so much, but he was a slave to it. He was, he was telling me, he's like, I feel like I'm a slave to this thing. I have no family life. And you know, he wanted my old man to step up and run it. Well, he wasn't going to do that. He was already basically, uh, you know, in his mindset that he was going to stay home more and do his thing. This was his baby, not that. That, he was just a silent partner in that. So anyway, one thing leads to another. They split the sheets and the boat's for sale. And then uh, the old man goes, well, I'll, he goes, uh, I can help you get into it if you want, if you want to buy Sigmund's part out. 
And I was hoping I could be there with him because I wanted to learn from Sigmund as well when I heard they bought that boat. And of course, we were in Alaska fishing, so we never really got to see it. And uh, uh, so he goes, I'll help, you with the, I'll help you with that loan if you want it. And so he was okay with that. But then Norman has to be a part of it. You know, you've got to be fair to your brothers. And I'm like, well, I'm all in. Shit, I don't care. You know, and this is right about the same time I bought my my house. I'm already strapped, but I didn't care. Like, let's do it. Let's go, yeah. Uh, but then my brother Norman says, no, he didn't want nothing to do with that. I don't know why. I think he, he just got back into the industry because he had gone to school and been a mechanic for you know, a few years. Then he's just back in the picture. And he goes, no. I'm like, so I resented him for years after that. Like, what are you, nuts? <coughs> so that deal falls through. Of course, they sell it to, to Leif. Uh, and he's, you know, he did tremendous with it. And then caught fire and, you know, got a bigger wheelhouse. And what a beautiful boat. And then just here, what, last year, a little over a year ago, then she goes down uh, under new ownership. But, uh, and of course, we know the guys, uh, Gary and those guys. And it just goes to show you, you know what I mean? You just don't know. And, uh, but what a deal that would have been. Beauty. So anyway, uh. It just shows you that, uh, you know, your, your loyalties lie, uh, and, and ours have always been in this boat, and, and I know as a family dynamic, we're very fortunate about that. And I got to tell you, what's kept this thing safe, and what's kept it, what's kept us alive for so many years, in my opinion, is the fact that not only is it family-owned, but because the crew members have been here uh, for so long, and because uh, you've got brothers that are invested in it and uh, are forced to work together, sometimes whether you like to or not, you know, you're not trading off different people all the time, you know. An engineer is one of the most important guys Everybody on the boat. The boat. They know the boat, hand and, you know, just top to bottom, but your chief is the one who also knows what parts need to be changed and what's starting to wear thin, you know, and where that whole dynamic is going. Your, your brother's here right now changing the oil. He's here right now changing oil, yeah. And we're about to leave tomorrow as we speak. So I can't do this interview for too much longer because <laughs> I got shit to do. But, uh, and I've been promising you forever to do this and it's just, you know, it's go time. Well, so, and then, so anyway, you know, that's the thing. It's like, I think that she's safer because every little thing that happens, we decide ourselves. It's not, you know, and I'm not knocking corporate. I'm just saying when you start changing people they don't always get what the boat you don't the boat doesn't always get what it needs and i'm talking the little things all the little things on deck that are hardly noticeable to anybody but the little things out there that make it better and uh, safer and we always try to do that as much as we can and uh, i tell you some of those little changes have made differences <coughs> so you know you, you 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 just think about times that you know What's happened to me on deck? You know, I've had lying in uh, around. Uh, you know, like I had a guy with his. Uh, we were fishing brown crab, and and uh, we were out west, and uh, I didn't know what the hell I was doing, and and uh, setting gear too fast. Next thing you know, got a noose around his leg, and it was Stainer Manus. He's flying back on the stern. You've got twenty pots attached to a single line, and uh, finally get back there, and and they cut him loose you know, almost killed him. And I'm thinking, Jesus, you know, so 
I've learned by my mistakes, but through other people's damn near, you know, horrific death and or accident. And so you, you become paranoid. But when you got the same crew, they also stay safer because they're watching each other and they work together and they've got that dynamic. And, uh, you know, it's just like clockwork. And if you can find that clockwork, you know, it does make a difference. And uh, so we've been, you know, knock on wood, we've been damn lucky. Do you see your exit strategy? Well, I mean, quite honestly, you know, we're doing the show still. Uh, and I think uh, with the show, uh, there's longevity there. Uh, um, it's amazing. It's uh, That's part of my legacy, I believe. And there's so many different avenues that have come from that and opportunity and different things that I can do, I think, to help me feel that I've left my own mark on the world. Other than just being, you know, Captain Sig on the show, which is amazing. And I'm very grateful. And other than being, you know, uh, the captain of this boat and with my brothers and part owner with them. And other than the fact that I can maybe leave something behind for the next generation, our family still want to accomplish something, uh, a, a segue from what we've already done. And we're working on a lot of neat ideas right now that are coming to fruition as we speak. Uh, there's a new bait that's been developed that we're doing in Norway that uh, works like a champ. It's been tried but never done. And we're doing it. And now we find out that this bait actually works for a fish called lepifisk, which uh, they, fish farming is the number two industry in Norway. Fish farming is big all over the world, right? Salmon farms. So they've actually, this bait we found works in the traps that they use for these fish farms. And here's how they do that. They go out, fishermen go out, they catch fish or use bait to catch crab okay and so number one you're spending the time to catch fish and then you're going to bait your pots another pot to catch crab they're going to take the crab and they take the, the the crab that they catch and they they break them in two and then they bait up lip fisk pots so they bait up the pots with these half of crab each right mm -hmm. all these pots that they use then they go out and then they pull those pots to get this live lip fisk. And that fish, there are many different versions, but those, those fish are a big, big value. They sell those fish to the salmon farmers because the salmon farmers use them because the fish naturally eat the lice out of the pens. So all these salmon farming pens have lice in them. And so you have a natural way to clean them. Now do the math. That's about the not the, the most unsustainable way you can ever uh, 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 keep a fish pen clean. Right. Um, it's just to me, and it's not my business, but here's my point is we've already created this bait. Our next one is for cod, but the bait was meant for the hobby fishermen, you know, for crab. And it works because it's dried. Now you don't have to go out and get... You don't have to have a freezer to keep your bait. You know, it's in a plastic bag. It stays fresh forever. You don't have to worry about the, you know, the space. 
You don't have to worry about going out and catch your own bait to bait your pot. It's like a puck. Um, and so it, this has been done before. I remember guys doing this, but they could never make it work. Well, we got the guy that's that's doing that now. It's making it work. And so uh, what could be easier than that? Throw in your puck and then you're done. Plus, we also can make it fish up to four days, two days, whatever, with our consistency and the, and the smell, right? <clears throat> so, and now that we found out it's working on the lip fish uh, for the salmon farming, which is number two industry, in Norway at least, and, and uh, they've, they've got them all over Europe you know, and here, um, I think that's going to be a win. And that will change, hopefully, the way these guys are baiting their pots, you know, and making that industry more sustainable. Mm -hmm. To me, that's leaving a mark, doing something positive well, and using your notoriety, you know, a way that uh, for the next generation and something that I can really put my name behind and feel like, hey, man, not only did I do that, not only was I a part of my father's legacy, but now I've created my own individual path and here it is we've also come up with uh, another unit called rescue unit now this is and when i was in norway uh pitching my clothing line right and that's just fun to do but we travel all across the the country and had a plane taking us from town to town and what a neat uh, deal uh there's a guy, his name was Helgi. He was chasing me around from town to town. He's like, just look at my product. Look at my product. I said, no, I don't want to look at it. I got shit to do. <laughs> so finally, you know, he gets his 10 minutes. And I looked at it and I said, in theory, I go, I, I like it. I go, if you want me to shoot holes in it, uh, I will. So I shot holes in it. Shot it full of holes. I said, in theory, it's a great idea. I go, but you, you've got price and you've got practicality and all the other stuff that goes with it. Next time I see the guy, they already had another mock-up. He goes, what do you think of this? And I looked at it. Everything I said to do, they did. And uh, I jumped on board as fast as I could. This product is another one where, uh, if, let's say you lose your gear. You lose your pot, whether it's a shrimp pot, lobster pot crab pot, dungy pot. It's a device that uh, will float to the surface. So it has an, an escapement, a timer on it. We've now got it down to a digital version. It opens up, it creates an escape mechanism. So any species that need to crawl out, let's say it's after the season, they'll crawl out. You gotta have your escape device. We use cotton twine. It's got what, 60 days on it and it opens up. And then this, this unit will float to the surface. There's a very thin uh, uh, line attached to it. And there's actually, now we have a GPS. So if you lose your gear, you can go find and retrieve your lost pot. If the ice comes through, we've lost hundreds of thousands of pots in the ice. Well, let's say they take them over the edge. You know, the pot goes over the edge. Now you don't have enough line and your bags go down. That's what happens. And then eventually they pop and lay on the bottom. If you had something like this, and theory's been out there for years, but these we're making it work, comes up, and then you can go find your, you know, you'll find that flotation device, and you can retrieve your pot. So <clears throat> I think that that right now we're in the stages to where, uh, I won't say where, but it's uh, slowly becoming mandatory. 
if that becomes mandatory, imagine what that'll do to the rest of the uh, industries across the globe. And that's why, like in Norway, it's a socialistic government. But at the same time, you know, when you're looking at things that you can do with, the, you know, the Minister of Fisheries and, and these, these boards that they have, a lot of these ideas can come to fruition because, you know, in the United States, it's different states, different governments. It's all governed different. Not only that, but startup money in Norway, uh, if you have, like our bait, you have uh, startup money for small companies to start up, and the government, they give you government grants for scientific exp uh, exploration. And so what could be better than that, mm -hmm. you know? And, and that's how it helped us to actually really get the time. We've got a couple, three years into this now. Really get the time to get the bait right. And now with the rescue unit, uh, it's already, you know, they're selling stocks. So that's kind of how I'm thinking about it. So, you know, you, you talk about legacy and all that. Well, should I still be thinking about the Northwestern? Am I, is she taking a back seat to my own personal gain and or ego? It makes me wonder. See, but the bottom line is every fisherman that I know that's ever been successful has always been an entrepreneur. And I tell you what, my dad was the same way, you know, and I don't know what what's going on here. Edgar, same thing, man. Always an idea. My brother Norman, same thing. <laughs> this guy, when he was a kid. You know, the stereos were the new thing. He had 30,000 bucks into a fucking stereo into his car. He couldn't stop building it because he just wanted to expand. It wasn't about ego. It was about doing it. It wasn't about the money. It was about just doing it. Couldn't stop. And uh, same thing. Norma, very clever. I, I have a book at home that I've had for years and years as a kid with all kinds of different patents, different ideas. And... Uh, you know, it's just how you, I think if your brain works like that, you don't want to stop. And so uh, that's legacy as well, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And that's just how I, I, I think. And, uh, you know, these cod pots that we're using now, we started fishing cod, you know, almost got into a lawsuit with the, one of the pot builders up here because we had the same idea. We were making these fold down tunnels and I was talking to my old man and, I, and we were rigging over gear to go fish cod. This was in 95. And, I, and we just started it. And I think the next year I go, this is ridiculous. We got to take all the gear in, offload your opies, spend a week in town screwing around and uh, rewebbing all your gear, pulling the tunnels down so you can put these plastic fingers in your tunnel. You know, they're like uh, where the cod go in. And so they're like a, a, a fingers that, that let the fish in, but they won't let the fish out. Anyway, they're called cod pots. So we're thinking, how in the hell uh, can we do this better? And Dad and I are talking. I said, yeah, what if you could pull that tunnel down? Simultaneously, we came up with the same idea. When I got the boat down, we were building gear. And the next thing you know, uh, we tried our first version, and they worked like a son of a gun. So that bought me a week of fishing. So every time... Uh, we were done with our season and, and moved into the next one. When I'm pulling the gear on board, I'm rigging them over. And then I'm bringing them into town. I'm setting them, and then I'm offloading my crab. Now my fish pots are fishing already. already. And the rest of the guys are with their thumb up their ass for a week or two, screwing around. 
by the time they got going, we were already, you know, on our way for a tremendous season. Well, a year later, I see Lance, he's got the same kind of thing, and uh, we were fighting over patents. At the end of the day, we became best of friends, and I just let it go. <laughs> I'm like, this is just an idea. It worked for us, so why, why bitch? And I, look, I was looking through my book of ideas as a kid. <clears throat> I had a, uh, uh, I'd drawn up a patent. I'd sent it in, did a patent search. And this was because we had leaks in our engine room and boats that went down because of their cirque pipes. And it was a, a big clamp that you could put on with a relief valve and then a, a quick uh, a, a clamp where you, you, you clamp it shut, get the water uh, relieved, and then you could close that off. Uh, so that you could stop a leak real quick. And uh, I sent in the patent or for the search, came back, I'm going to say three, four months earlier, uh, I swear to God, you could take the two pictures, hold them up side by side, it was identical. And I'm like, damn it, you know. You just missed it. Just missed it. And the, and the guy, you know, I wanted to sell mine to the military. I mean, do the math on that one. And uh, so, you know, all these guys that are like that have those entrepreneurial skills. Dad had some uh, tremendous ideas, uh, you know, and uh, actually, you know, on these boats, when you look at the, the, you know, he was always arguing with the architects, even after the boat was built. You know, when you uh, when you have your tanks closed up and you put you, you put your manhole on, well, they didn't have ventilation for air. Uh, when they first had these boats built. So the air had no place to go. You're blowing hatch covers off all the time. The, the big covers. Because if you have a little bit of air and you got water sloshing around with no place for it to go, what's going to happen? So dad was one who came up with these air vents that they're in the tank. They go up through underneath the deck and then up. And they're above the water line, above the water level as ventilation. See, there's always something like that. And that's where, uh, you know, that's what makes me very happy to be a part of all this. Because, you, you know, there's always a better way. There's always a quicker, easier, better way. And same goes for fishing. Same goes for life. Same goes for legacy. And I'm going to get out of here because I'm leaving in literally 24 hours. One, one final question. What's that? I, obviously, your dad was your biggest influence. Your, and, your strongest mentor. Well, he's, he was one of my biggest heroes, for sure. Who, who else would it be? Oh my gosh, you know, I mean... Not a whole list. Let's... No, I mean, you know, out of the Norwegian gang, I mean, well, you know, uh, Odvar Midhog and Sigmund and Corey Ness and Chuck Bunrent and, you know, some of these guys, there's, there, there's, the list is too big. And, and they're all influences. Uh, you know, John and captains I've worked for, you know, and if you were to single out one, I, I think that'd be an injustice because, you know... You know, you can't judge a, a guy by how much money he makes or how much time he put in. It's, it's, they all together have brought something to an industry, but, it's all, but all these guys, because of what they've brought in, uh, you know, guys like me, the, the, the next generation, have, have uh, you know, managed to, uh, 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 what's the word, uh, you know, I've learned from that, and you know, and they've contributed. I've added too, of course, and uh, so the list is too big. 
and and that, but that's I think the biggest influence is the the fact that mentally you're always looking at these guys and you always want to gain their respect. You're not going to beat them because it was a different game they're playing. But if you can get that respect, just that one pat on the back that one time. Especially from those old timers. Especially from the old timers. Then you did your job, man. That's all you can ask for. Good enough. Good enough. All right, Sig, thanks for taking the time today. Well, you know, uh, it's been too long, and uh, I, I could probably talk for hours because I know I'm going to remember things I forgot. But at the same time, you know, it's a lot of fun, well, and I'm glad I did it. We're both always down here in Ballard, so we can always do another one. There you go. But, uh, all right, guys, uh, thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to Galley Stories. We hope you like what the net brought in. Please leave us a review on iTunes. Whether you like it or not, we're not fishing for compliments. Look us up on Facebook and Twitter, too, and reach out to us at galleystories at gmail.com.